Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Anshu Mater uh, with us today. Uh, Dr. Mater is an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering and Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Uh, Dr. Mater, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you, John. Uh, I understand that uh, your principal interests are in uh, tissue engineering and specifically in engineering biomaterials that can be used for both hard and soft tissue. Uh, please just uh, give us a bit of an overview of, uh, of your interest and where you're headed. Sure. Um, we work with uh, biologically derived materials. In particular, we work with silk fibroin and cardizan blends. And the reason we work with those two materials is because it mimics the extracellular matrix well. Um, silk fibroin mimics the collagen, and uh, cardizan is a, gl a glucosamine, glucosamine that mimics the glycosaminoglycan in the extracellular matrix. Um, another advantage of working with these two materials is that they're extremely versatile. We can make uh, films, films, um, three-dimensional scaffolds, and also engineer the three-dimensional structure at the nano level. Um, silk uh, is, a, is a very uh, beautiful polymer that uh, has high flexibility with strength, and we're able to, because of it, the beta sheets that it forms in three dimensions, we are able to make um, nanoscale fibers that we can then self-assemble in three dimension using a technique called dielectrophoresis. Very good. Uh, so you've introduced this uh, topic of uh, nanoscale fibers. Uh, tell us briefly uh, why that's important. Well, that's a very good question. Um, cells make these uh, adhesions uh, with, with any matrix they're attached to, whether it's glass or an extracellular matrix in vivo or uh, a, a polymer that's synthetic. Uh, it's going to make these adhesions uh, at the cell-substrate interface, which are within 100 nanometers. And if you look at the collagen um, nanostructure, you find that you know the, the collagen fibers are on the order of 20 nanometers. So the cell is able to then grab on or attach to a single fiber and have control of its matrix at that level. So we want to be able to provide that same microenvironment to the cell so that when it attaches, it's able to sense the nanostructure, nanomechanics of the matrix and also have control over it. So let's say it attaches to a new biomaterial that you've put in the body, and, and it's it's stiff, and the cell says, hey, you know, this feels a little stiff. So um, it should be able to secrete a protease or another enzyme and be able to degrade where necessary, um, and the biomaterial should basically respond to that and, and change its properties based on what the cell is trying to do. So we're trying to make these responsive, so-called responsive biomaterials, and that's why the nanostructure is very important. Uh, very interesting. Now, uh, to make engineered tissue, there's uh, at least two parts to the recipe. There's a scaffold and there's cells. Uh, so perhaps we can talk for a few moments about uh, both parts of this uh, system. How, how does one make a scaffold? And then uh, where, does, where do you get the cells that are used to, uh, to attach to the that's, scaffold? That's a very good question. I think we get asked that all the time. Um, we're, we're basically, our hypothesis is that we want to be able to make a biomaterial that's, that's responsive to cells and harnesses the body's capacity to regenerate. 
uh, and that's a key here is harnessing the body's capacity to regenerate. For example, um, in the, in the uh, over your ribs in the body, it's, there's a thin layer of tissue called um, periosteum, and it regenerates bone in the ribs constantly. It turns over uh, over bone at that interface. It's a very thin piece of tissue, um, uh, less than a millimeter, and we're able to um, uh, we're able to remove that thin piece of tissue and then implant it over a muscle site. Uh, and then come in with a chamber of known dimensions with our biomaterial in it. And this, basically, the cell source then becomes the periosteum. The periosteum that regenerates bone normally has CD105 rich precursor cells to bone um, and basically goes in and makes bone over an 84 day period within the chamber. Um, and that's only if the biomaterial is right. And we've compared it to a clinical clinically relevant control, the bone graft, and by 84 days we get about the same volume of bone that we would get. Um, so with, with bone graft we get about the same volume that we would get with the silk artisan. And that's, that's a very important point because um, if you go to a surgeon, um, they're going to be inclined towards using a bone graft because that's what works. They know that, that no biomaterial really works. So we can find a biomaterial that we can engineer the microstructure of, nanostructure of, mechanics of, um, and gear it towards a particular application. Uh, the, the surgeons would be more likely to use it as compared to autologous tissue such as the bone graft. So I know this is still a, a scientific study, but you have a, a vision in terms of how this might be used clinically someday. And so... Uh, is this, uh, this the, the tissue regeneration, is it done uh, in vivo or in vitro? It's, it's in vivo. Um, the bone model that we have is in sheep. Uh, that was developed with uh, two plastic surgeons at MD Anderson Cancer Center, um, Mike Miller, who is now at Ohio State, um, and Roman Skoraki, who is was still with us at MD Anderson. And we got funded by the Musculoskeletal Transplant Foundation um, to study this. So uh, the most of the models that we work with are in vivo. The abdominal wall reconstruction model that we have is in guinea pigs, um, and that's in collaboration with Dr. Chuck Butler in plastic surgery. So one of the advantages of being at MD Anderson is that you are in a clinically translatable environment, and everything that we do um, there, um, whether it's biomedical engineering or, or basic science, um, it's geared towards clinical translation. So let me try to understand how this would be applied clinically. So if, if I needed a, a bone graft and uh, my physician chose to use this particular technology when it's matured, uh, the, the, the bone graft would be um, cultured in my leg, for example, for right. 84 days? No. So, so the way it would work is uh, currently the, the, a surgeon would go to your fibula um, we're talking about critical size reconstruction of, for example, your mandible. Say you end up with a tumor in your face and it's, it's uh, basically infiltrated into your mandible and the entire mandible has to come off. Um, so what we would do is make a mold of the defect site, uh, remove the tumor, make a mold of the defect site, and um, there's a certain percent contraction of the material over time. So you would account for that contraction um, when, you're, when you're choosing the volume of, of bone that you would like to... Um, uh, basically mold into, uh, and we would basically uh, fill in that mold with the biomaterial that, we're, that we have, 
and um, imp uh, remove a periosteum um, from your ribs or from another site and basically put it over your thigh muscle, for example, or, or your back muscle, whichever uh, would work best for you. Um, and then basically grow, you would grow in your own piece of bone and we can then remove it as a tissue flap the way you would remove a fibula with a blood supply. And the surgeons would basically go in and integrate it into your mandible with the blood supply. Um, so you, you are basically good to go at that point. Um, so the, the, the bioreactor that many of your colleagues use, in your case, is the human body. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's the clinical application, yes. Very interesting. Uh, you mentioned abdominal wall uh, reconstruction. And uh, is this done in a similar manner, or is there some different strategies? Um, the for abdominal wall is a... So that, that's for ventral hernia repair. Um, that's a ventral hernia repair study. And um, Dr. Butler has developed a, uh, a model to, to study that in vivo in a guinea pig. And uh, we, we came in with our biomaterials, and uh, he, he basically um, wanted to compare it with clinically relevant control. Uh, and the, currently, the, the gold standard is alloderm. And that's uh, basically a thermally cross-linked uh, dermal uh, matrix from a cadaver. Um, that's, that's what's used in humans for uh, if you want to have, you know, say you end up with a tumor and your entire abdominal wall needs to be replaced, you take little pieces of alloderm, you sew them together and make a big sheet and implant it in, and it works great. Um, the only problem it may have over time is that wherever you have sutures or, or wherever it interfaces with the muscle, you may have... Um, um, interface failure at that point. Well, what we found with the silkidazan was that once we implanted it in, after four weeks, we couldn't find the biomaterial. It got integrated into the native abdominal wall, um, and the interface was well integrated with new muscle and, and new tissue, such as the fascia forming with vascularization. And the strength of the of the um, regenerated tissue was the same as, uh, or very close to the normal abdominal wall. So, um, so as far as application in that area, we don't need to remove anything. We just put in a biomaterial that holds enough strength so that it does not fail when the body is trying to regenerate it. But then at the end of a certain amount of time, it gets reintegrated into the tissue so that it doesn't fail at the interface where you've sutured it. While your focus is on uh, reconstruction from cancer, it's uh, my understanding that the, one of the other uh, big needs for abdominal wall reconstruction these days is uh, from some of the soldiers that are returning from overseas, and there's apparently some uh, lots of uh, severe and, and massive cases of abdominal wall uh, reconstruction that's needed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, is with many many instances the the technology that you have set out to uh, apply to one application certainly would be applicable to others as well. Yes. You uh, seem to have uh, an interest in in wound healing without scarring. Uh, I gather that this uh, this particular approach uh, accomplishes that objective. Yes, um, we believe the biomaterials that we're working with have the right chemistry so that they have 
limited or no scarring and are able to regenerate tissue. Uh, again, the key would be to, to have these biomaterials in the right vicinity of the right type of precursor cells, or it should attract the right type of cells so that um, you are forming new tissue and not, not scarring. Um, one, of the, one of the projects that we're working on is we want to be able to guide the body to regenerate, uh, and that's where, when I say we'll pick a cell source, pick the right uh, nanostructure mechanics, um, and pick the three, right three-dimensional structure so that you're able to regenerate the tissue that you're interested in, whether it's a liver, for example, that's more complex, that, or, or, or a bone that we're talking about here. So one of the things that we're working on, uh, and we've, we've shown uh, basically guidance, vascular guidance um, in our, in our um, uh, engineered structures. So we use a technique called a dielectrophoresis that self-assembles fibers of the silk fibroin embedded in the chitosan matrix in three dimensions and basically um, uh, aligns the polymer chains in the direction of the line fiber. Um, and the cells are able to attach to these fibers and use that, them as guiding materials for vascularization and tissue and growth. Um, so we, what we want to do is be able to tell the cell here, go make a blood vessel here, go make bone here, go make cartilage here, so that when you're talking about three-dimensional complex tissues, you're able to engineer that uh, based on the starting off with the structure of mechanics. Um, Another key thing that we do in our materials is we don't add any growth factors. We don't add anything else. I know cytokines, nothing. Um, the cell is able to do this just based on the chemistry and the structure of the material. Interesting. We discussed a moment ago the, uh, your strategy in terms of using the, essentially other parts of the body as the bioreactor to, uh, to uh, grow this uh, scaffold that you've uh, you've developed um, and for small pieces of bone I can sort of understand or envision how that would work but if there was a for example a massive uh, abdominal wall reconstruction that was needed uh, uh, how would you do that or how would um, surgeons do that like like I previously said um, the current um, standard for reconstructing abdominal wall is they take uh, pieces about, let's see, um, about 12 centimeter by 6 centimeter in, in dimension, and they could be bigger, I'm not sure. Um, but I, I've seen those sizes where they just sew those pieces together and make a sheet out of it and then reconstruct the abdominal wall. It's like building a quilt, uh, except with, with tissue. Right, and I don't think that's the best strategy because wherever you have sutures, it, it may fail. Mm -hmm. So our goal is to be able to make our polymer will self-assemble. All you need is more polymer. Mm -hmm. So if you want to make a larger sheet, we should be able to engineer that. In fact, that's what makes it better than the current clinical standard mm -hmm. um, using alloderm is that we should be able to fine-tune it at the nano level. If you want to make large sheets of this material um, that has three-dimensional nanostructure, then you should be able to do that. And we believe that using the technique of dielectrophoresis, we should be able to do that. Now, you shared with us a few moments ago that you're in this wonderful environment where you have, uh, you know, excellent science and you have a, a very focused effort on clinical translation as well. 
Uh, and I realize that uh, where you are today and uh, where you will be is dependent on the outcome of, uh, you know, the experiments and, and uh, programs that, uh, that you have planned. But as a, as a rough estimate, I mean, when might this be available for clinical trials? Five years, ten years? Uh, actually, I, I'm going to refer you to, uh, I think, Tony Radcliffe presented yesterday, and he said, if you wanted to... Um, have a biomaterial go through, I think it's a 510K or a 501K, one of those uh, FDA approvals. I thought it was five to eight years, and that's the least amount of time you need for a tissue engineered product. So we would be in that, in that category is that we have a biomaterial that regenerates and doesn't have any cells in it, no growth factors. So we should be able to basically take it through much faster than you would a complete tissue engineered product that was made in the bioreactor. So in addition to your research, uh, I understand that you have some academic focus as well? Yes, yeah, so we're building a, um, a biomedical engineering program at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and it's uh, going to be a very unique program from the existing uh, BME programs that are around the country. One is that it's part of a, a three-institution program program. Um, UT Austin, UT Health Science Center, and MD Anderson together make this new interinstitutional BME department. Um, but what MD Anderson has to offer um, to this uh, program is that we have a clinical translation of engineering uh, research. And, and that's the key, um, I think, for successful uh, biomedical engineering and tissue engineering. So uh, we're building, uh, uh, our, our president, uh, Dr. Mendelson, is very supportive of the program. Uh, our vice president, Dr. Kripke, um, is, is also very supportive. So uh, they have a vision for biomedical engineering at MD Anderson, and, uh, I, uh, and, and the faculty basically support it very much. And, um, and I think we, what we're doing is trying to build it so that we offer um, uh, our expertise as far as clinical translation and, and cl in vivo clinical models to the, um, to the graduate students and postdoctoral fellows around the nation. Um, and unique opportunities um, as far as how to move products um, into the clinic. So will this be an undergraduate and graduate program? Uh, currently we do run undergraduate summer internships and they, they work very well uh, at MD Anderson. You know, they, students get to go to, into the clinic for a little bit, look at, uh, watch surgeries, and then work with the in vivo models in the summer, so actually get hands-on research. And a lot of people, uh, a lot of students do very well. I mean, they'll get a publication out just working in the summer. Mm -hmm. um, so we want to gear it towards graduate students also. Um, so offer the, the, the BME programs who don't have access to in vivo models and, and um, clinical translation, we would offer them, yes, maybe summer internships or a six to eight week program where they can come and, and see where their, how their re research can impact in the clinic. Are you accept, accepting applications now, or when will students Yes, I am. Uh, as, as the director of research for the tissue regeneration and, and molecular cell engineering lab, I am accepting applications. Okay. And we will uh, post on the Regenerative Medicine Today uh, podcast site links to your site, and uh, so anyone that's interested right. can... Uh, uh, our, our tram cell site, as I mentioned earlier, is not up yet. Um, but it, it, it will be up. We're working on it currently. Um, we've just formed a new department, and we're basically sort of transitioning over. Um, but yes, once the site is up, I will send you the link.
Very fine. It Thank sounds you. Uh, sounds like an exciting program. And uh, as uh, we're here at uh, the Termis annual meeting, and there's uh, uh, of the 670 uh, attendees, I understand that approximately half of them are graduate students and postdocs. So there's a a, a very fertile environment for uh, you to explore uh, potential uh, trainees. Uh, Dr. Mather, it's uh, been uh, very exciting to uh, learn of your programs and to hear about the progress you've made and your, your prospects for the future. Uh, I'd like to, uh, on behalf of all our listeners, uh, thank you for joining us on Regenerative Medicine today. Uh, and for our listeners, uh, let me remind you that uh, we're not physicians and we're not in a position to uh, do diagnosis of specific medical problems. Regenerative Medicine today is uh, designed to uh, bring you exciting new developments in the area of regenerative medicine. I'd also extend our thanks to the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine for sponsoring this podcast, and we look forward to you joining us in two weeks for another exciting interview. Thank you. Thank you, John.